your way on over to Mark chapter 16. And today we actually come to the end of our series in the gospel according to Mark. If you've been with us since the beginning in January 2020, it has been a long roll, slow (laughs) roll through the gospel according to Mark. And today we draw it to a close with this question. What does Easter mean? So after two millennia, of church history and billions of people around the world this very day affirming Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection, Easter is still contested. As pseudo-evidence, and I'm leaning heavily on the pseudo-word here, every year around this time, a particular Easter-themed meme starts to pop up on all the social medias, particularly Facebook for whatever reason. And the meme, which ironically in 2021 is still a courier of trusted information, contends that the Assyrian goddess Ishtar is the origin of the word Easter. So they draw a connection, Ishtar, Easter, You see how they do that? And what they do in this little meme is they make a connection that if you celebrate Easter, you're actually giving a wink and a nod to a pagan goddess. So chocolate bunnies, eggs, yeah, that's about a pagan holiday. So the meme would have us believe. In short response, and we'll close the loop on this here in a moment, not true. (laughs) And yet, what's so compelling is that when this meme first picked up a lot of steam a number of years ago, it wasn't just fringe cynics or like wounded atheists lashing out and trolling on the internet. No, it was groups like Richard Dawkins Foundation for Reason and Science who shared the meme. Who, by the way, that foundation, they explicitly claim to, quote, support scientific education, critical thinking, and evidence-based understanding of our natural world. Irony. Over time, their post has garnered thousands of likes, well into the hundreds of thousands of shares. All of that to say, Easter is contested. So when we ask, what does Easter mean? The temptation is then to uh, talk about what Easter is about or, or what Easter is. And in turn, we end up dancing around the meaning, and I would say the significance, and we move quickly then to facts about Assyrian goddesses and chocolate bunnies and uh, the etymology, where words come from and how do they get from one place to another. And even in the church, this happens. Who was at the tomb and who was there when? And did the angel have this? Oh, or was it a young man? You know, all these little constellation of facts around Easter. And the challenge with that, the challenge with the constellation of facts about Easter is that they don't necessarily lead to the meaning of Easter. More on that in a moment. For now, let's just close the loop on this meme so it can die here on this Resurrection Sunday. Uh, The Assyrian goddess Ishtar, it's not represented by bunnies and eggs. If you look at the Ishtar gate, there's seven symbols that represent the Assyrian goddess Ishtar, lions, seven-pointed stars, and five other things that I don't know what they are. The point is, this little meme would have you believe that that's what's true. And then they would use the the connection between Ishtar and Easter sounding familiar. But Easter is the English translation of the German translation of Passover. So even there, total disconnect. See, uh, it's not true. And there you have it. You can uh, go on the internet and look for it yourself. 
Such irony. This is a great Easter so far. See, this contested space about Easter, as far as I can see, is less about meaning and it's more about the arrangement of facts around Easter, as though the right ordering of information will yield right thinking about that rightly ordered information. And from that place of right thinking, then we can attend to meaning. In other words, we need reason and logic to get to meaning. And I'm not throwing reason and logic out. I'm not attempting to assault them at all. Jesus says to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. He pulls on every available image and metaphor to say, love the Lord your God with the fullness of who you are. So reason and logic, yes and amen to that. What I'm calling our attention to is this default mode. As late modern Westerners with Wi-Fi and an inclination to dance around meeting in favor of facts, because facts give us information, duh, but facts also give us control or at least the illusion of control. And if I can have the facts, then I can feel secure in how to negotiate and navigate a scenario. So, so what would happen if we just shifted right now? What would happen if we asked a different question? If we asked, what does resurrection mean? See, see what if this Easter we were anti-Easter so we could be pro-resurrection? We could just get right to the meaning. And so for that, we're actually going to turn to our teaching text, Mark chapter 16. And in our community here, we've been learning a little bit more and more about honor and what does it mean to give our preferences away? How do we show honor? honor to one another, as Eugene, as Eugene Peterson says it, like outdo one another playing the second fiddle. And you see, God's word is something that we believe is due honor. So wherever you are, if you're able, would you stand with me in honor of God's word? I'm going to read straight through our teaching text, Mark 16, 1 to 8, and then we're just going to work our way back through line by line. Mark 16, 1. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb, and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in white, in a white robe, sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You're looking for Jesus the Nazarene, who was crucified. He has risen. He has risen indeed. That's your line. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Verse 8. Trembling and bewildered. The women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word. You can have a seat. So to start in on this glorious anti-Easter pro-resurrection Sunday, notice how Mark concludes the gospel according to Mark with the same women from Mark 15. 40 and 47. We're told that these women have been with Jesus, that is, they've been following and serving Jesus, like taking on the marks of true discipleship to Jesus. They've been with him since the inception of his ministry up in the northern part of Israel called the Galilee. 
And now they're here in this final scene, the last disciples standing. And and if you're just picking up in the gospel according to Mark with us, a little refresh on the women, and maybe you're just feeling a little rusty from last week. Uh, In Mark 15, 40, and 47, Mark notes that these women thoreoed Jesus. That is, they they perceived, they observed, they saw. And when they thoreoed Jesus, they did so from a distance. And that distance is a ominous marker in the gospel according to Mark. Because it signals that that dynamic of drift, those dynamics of drift that were at work among the 12, the the other disciples, might also be at work among them. And Mark creates then, in in the start of our teaching text, this growing sense of expectation. And you see that right in the first few words. So look back there at verse 1. When Sabbath was over. And those words say to anyone familiar with Judaism that a new day has emerged, that the dark hour of the cross has passed and something new is on the horizon. See, we could do a whole series right here just on these words, when the Sabbath was over. But just to tickle a little fancy right here, in Genesis 1 to Genesis 2, 3, we get the Lord God, the Creator God, speaking out of this generative love over creation. And as God speaks, life comes forth. There's skies and seas and mountains, and there's creatures to fill those spaces, and they're good, 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 good. They're good, and they are very good. And the pinnacle of that creation, humanity is formed. God takes this dust of the ground, and he breathes life into it. And these living creatures, humanity, come forth. And then on the seventh day, God rests. He ceases. He stops, which in, in the Hebrew imagination is this picture of him reigning and ruling. It's, there's this common picture of kings reigning and ruling in gardens. It's royal language, and there God sits like kicking back, enjoying the goodness of his creation. So what does that mean? Well, what does that mean for the next day? It means that the next day, the eighth day, The day when the Sabbath is over is the day when new creation starts. In the Genesis account, it is the day when humanity and God would partner together to reign and rule and bring the flourishing of God's peace and presence to all of the world. It's a good day. To say the Sabbath was over meant that this moment would be brimming with new creation hope. And and to make that growing sense of expectation available to to the rest of us who don't have like the imprint of the Hebrew imagination on our own, Mark goes on in verse 2 and he says, Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise. You see, there's something intuitive about the sunrise. We actually sing songs about it still to this day. We sing them in our church. The sun comes up. It's a new day dawning. It's time to sing your song again. Whatever may pass, whatever lies before me, let me be singing when the evening comes. And then that refrain, bless the Lord, O my soul. See, there's something intuitive about the sun bringing light to the darkness that awakens us to hope. And in that very moment, verse 3, 
They asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? See, these are the women who saw Joseph of Arimathea put the stone in front of the tomb, and now they're wondering who will roll it away. And before we go any further, two things. First, this will feel redundant and it's on purpose. The women are there. Let me, let me just say that again. The women, not the disciples, the women are there. Yeah, there's that ominous note in 1540 and 47, but when Jesus moves from the cross to the tomb, who is looking? The women. And at this moment, on the new day, when hope is brimming in the air, who's there again? The women. Just let that settle in. See, women have no verifiable testimony in this day, and yet Mark positions them as the first ones. He positions them in the center. He tells this story through their vantage point. And some people speculate, well, that just means this story is obscure and out of historical place, or that's actually how it happened. The women are there. And I think this needs to be said over and over and over again until we can live into and out of these gospel implications. That is, if any religious paradigm reads this and reads the gospels and goes on thinking and teaching that women have no place proclaiming, leading, or embodying the way of Jesus in any and every space in the church, then perhaps that paradigm, that religious system needs a little resurrection life. You know what I mean? See, my prayer is that any and every woman who have ever been told that they can't lead in the church or just feel from the space itself that it's just not their place, I would hope that they would encounter Mark's words as a fresh invitation to reimagine that resurrection life is possible and women are the last ones standing and the first to hear that he is risen. Okay, I'll just step down off that little soapbox for a moment. Second thing, the question. Verse 3, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? See, this, this question is small but big at the same time. You see, it, it reveals this underlying assumption that Jesus would still be in the tomb. Biblical scholar Tim Gombas has this to say about this moment, that the women, their imaginations are limited by the horizon of this present age. In other words, it's possible to follow Jesus, to follow Jesus from the inception of his ministry, to hear his teachings, to even hear his passion predictions where he says, you know, they're going to kill me. And then after three days, I'll rise to hear those things. And even with sincerity, believe them and miss the message. You can have the facts and miss the meaning. And even here, when the, the stone just feels like this impossible obstacle, Mark invites us through the women to see something more, namely the power of God. Look there with me, verse 4. But when they looked up, and pay attention to that, when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. So again, Mark is going to continue to tell this story through the women's vantage point, how they perceive, how they see what's taking place. And this moment will help us to draw ourselves into the moment itself. 
And what we notice when we kind of enter into the story through their vantage point is that they have come to the tomb well-intentioned. They've come to the tomb to anoint Jesus with spices, and they're caught off guard when they show up, and God has already acted. Like the obstacle they anticipated is no obstacle at all. It's been rolled away. How can that be? That's the appropriate question. Who moved the stone? Well, there's this little line right there at the beginning, when they looked up. See, that gives us a bit of a hint. Because in the whole working of Mark, this word, the, the, the word in the Greek, which the New Testament is originally written in, is anablepo. And every time anablepo is used, something miraculous breaks out. See, this is the word that Mark uses when Jesus looks up when he anablepos to the heavens to ask God to bless and spread provision for the masses. It's the same word in chapter 7 when Jesus looks up and asks for the sight to be restored to a man for his eyes to be opened. He anablepos. See, this looking up tells us, man, something miraculous is about to break out. That power is about to be revealed. The power of God, which surely unfolds. We actually see this unfold in the next few verses. Verse 5. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. And you got to love biblical narratives because you see, oh, the women are alarmed. And then what's the next line? Don't be alarmed. <laughs> just, just funny. He said, you're looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He has risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him. And this little scene right here is really similar to most angelic encounters. Uh, you see it with the birth narratives and Luke, and you, you, you see it littered across the scriptures that this is angelic encounters. It's like, oh my gosh, divine like power, like not divine power, but um, angelic power, these direct representatives of the creator God. Whoa, uh, don't be afraid. Don't be alarmed. And then more information. But Mark's language, as always, it's just densely packed. It is loaded. And this is another example. See, what we see is that the women are looking for Jesus. If you're reading in the ESV, you'll say seeking or they, you seek Jesus, the, Naz, the Nazarene. No, that's NIV. You seek Jesus of Nazareth is the ESV. And that word there is not like the former. It's not, the, they do not on a blepo. They do not look up for that. No, this is a different word. Mark, they zay tail. They zeteo. And, and, and to zeteo, to, to look, to seek for Jesus, to zeteo, is to look for him with human concerns in mind. See, this is the same word that Mark uses when Jesus' family comes to zeteo for him when they think he's gone mad. This is the word that Mark uses when he describes the religious leaders trying to zeteo Jesus to arrest and kill him. Zateo is caught up in human concerns about Jesus, and now the women, Zateo for Jesus, and the response, like just right there, pregnant in the text, is to see something more, to see Jesus as more than a collection of teachings. And the response that we get is, He is risen. It's as if the messenger is calling the women to open their eyes, to take in the reality of the risen one. He gives them a command look where they laid him. He's not there. And notice again how Jesus is described here. Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. See, this place of shame, 
the, the cross. It's worn by Jesus like a title of honor. That's actually how that's formulated. Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. And when the gospel writers tell us that Jesus was crucified, they're making a deeply social, political, economic, and religious statement. See, it's a statement about what it means to be human. And the empty tomb says it the loudest. There is another way to be human. He was crucified, but now he has risen. Now, just pause here for a moment because I think that's a familiar moment in the story. But if you've not been with us in the gospel according to Mark, here's a a brief recap. This is where we've been so far. Jesus comes on the scene, proclaiming that the kingdom of God is at hand. He's, uh, he's affirmed by his father in this miraculous moment of uh, like affirmation. The spirit breaks out, heaven's open, fantastic. He starts healing, teaching with authority. People are astonished, off to a pretty good start. Then he's accused of blasphemy for healing a paralyzed man. So apparently it's blasphemy uh, when you say your sins are forgiven. That doesn't quite make sense, but there's some sort of tension around that. Then Jesus is called out for eating with outcasts, tax collectors, and sex workers. And then Jesus is called out for not not eating, that is to... um, like not fast. And then in chapter three, he heals a man on the Sabbath and the religious rulers, they seek to destroy him. He's called the prince of demon for casting out demons. Then his family thinks he's gone mad. He's rejected by his hometown. Peter, one of his closest friends, rebukes him when he says that this is what God is moving me toward, namely the cross. And then the leaders want to arrest and kill him. His disciples abandon, betray, and deny him. He's falsely accused. He is beaten. He's mocked. He's spit on. He's humiliated. He's denied by his countrymen who literally shout, crucify him. He's hung on a Roman execution rack, which, by the way, if you don't know a lot about Roman execution racks or Roman execution stakes, they basically engineered a way to deliver the most pain without death. Because if you crank the pain up too much, then death goes. But if you just kill them right away, then there's not a lot of pain. So it's this sweet spot of excruciation. That's where Jesus' story climaxes. And he dies there. The worst of humanity befalls Jesus and it literally kills him. And now he is risen. And this is the words that follow. Verse 7, go, tell his disciples and Peter. We'll get to that in a moment. He's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. You will fully see him. This verse, can we just agree that this is just dripping, saturated with grace, this freely given gift that that anybody who's ever turned their back on Jesus can come to him, that he's gone ahead. This is not a rhetorical question. I I really like in your homes or at your kitchen tables, like um, I want you to answer this aloud. Whose disciples are the women to tell? If you said Jesus, it's like a safe response. That's like the Sunday school answer. Yes, Jesus' disciples. Do you see that Jesus has claimed the ones who abandoned him as his own? 
See, after Jesus has been accused, called out, shamed, rejected, rebuked, abandoned, betrayed, denied, mocked, spit on, humiliated, and killed, he says, let's go back to where it all started. I'll meet you there. You'll see me there. When the arresting party came to get Jesus, and Judas betrays him with a kiss, everyone leaves. But Jesus says, come. See, resurrection means that God's power can meet us even in our rejection. And by the way, that invitation includes Peter. That that little statement, and Peter, can be translated, even Peter. Peter denied Jesus three times. He says, I don't even know that man. Wouldn't even say his name. And yet, this messenger of God makes sure that Peter knows that Jesus sees him and that he has space to receive him. So for the Peters among us who think I'm too far gone, certainly God has turned his back on me. No, no, that be like, no. Let Jesus's words sink in here. Or rather the messenger who's calling the women to say, you will see me there. See, so often we're saying things like, man, if I could just go back, say different words or maybe not say any words at all as is often the case for me, if I could just call them when they asked me to call them or just do it differently, to all of the if only, the resurrection says it's not too late. Because the resurrection says you will see Jesus. He has risen. He's not here. And at this point, you might want to like pop the champagne, which is an appropriate response to the resurrection of the living king of the cosmos. But then, in stunning fashion, the final line reads as follows, verse 8. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Fade to black. That's the close of the gospel according to Mark. In the end, the same dynamic of drift that took over the 12, the disciples, has overtaken the women so that they take to the same fearful flight. There's no resurrection appearances, no reunion, just an abrupt failure. And if we're focused on the facts, Mark doesn't really cut it, does he? You kind of have to go to the other gospel accounts to see how they're telling the end of the story. But but each of these four biographies of of Jesus' life and ministry, they have an intent and an audience. And Mark is doing something quite intentional for you and for me and the church historic to provoke us to consider what does it mean to follow Jesus. And those extra verses with the big brackets and italicized and the asterisks, those verses that neither map onto the Markan language or to, goodness, like the dating of Mark, those are telling you that we're not the first ones who want the facts, who want a little bit more from Mark. Because if it ends like this, what does that mean? What does that mean if the people, the disciples who were the last ones standing, 
are overtaken by the same dynamics of drift. And I think this is the point. I think this is the point of the gospel according to Mark to make us stop long enough to consider, like, are those dynamics of drift at work in my own heart? What does it mean that Jesus claims his disciples as they own even as they reject him? Does Jesus go to the Galilee even if the women never say a thing? See, these are the type of questions that the community that receives Mark's gospel get to ask themselves so that they can follow Jesus in earnest and be aware of all of the baggage they bring. You see, resurrection has this kind of deep, subversive energy to it. It's said that those with the most power are the ones who have nothing to lose. So, a little mental exercise to help us get our minds around that statement. Uh, Imagine if you encountered the worst thing you can imagine. And maybe your temperament or your personality, like you're prone to catastrophize, so you're constantly thinking of the worst case scenario. So, just imagine the most recent one and that it actually happens. It does its worst and it kills you. Now, imagine that you're back from the dead. The worst of life, the worst thing you could ever imagine has happened in your back. That makes you a dangerous person because you have faced the worst and you are alive. See, resurrection sets something on the loose. Namely, a people who have nothing to lose. Resurrection says that the last word has not spoken, that the story isn't over, the exclusion, the bigotry, the violence, the injustice. They do not have the last word in Jesus' name. May it be so. Resurrection means this, that there is hope for the human story, for you and for me right where we are, betrayal and all. There is hope for the human story. So if you're feeling grieved in this season, if you've experienced deep loss, if you feel slighted or kicked aside, resurrection says it's not over. Because on the first resurrection Sunday, when the light of dawn was breaking out, when the Sabbath was over, resurrection broke out as a giant affirmation that new creation is on the loose in Jesus and it can be in you as well. See, we're here today celebrating resurrection life because this, the resurrection story, this is the enduring story. For millennia, this story is what drives the church some like 2.3 billion plus strong, like all the followers of Jesus around the world to announce and proclaim and embody resurrection life. They do so with one another in a world that says certainly resurrection cannot happen, but then they live as though they have nothing to lose. And they love like they have nothing to lose. And they lay aside their preferences like they have nothing to lose. Because Jesus took the worst of it all. And he's alive. He is risen so that we in his name could have the same hope. See, Mark tells this story to move you, to move me toward, not away from Jesus, 
See, when we think like the women didn't say a thing because they were afraid, like this is an invitation to just look down into the deepest parts of who we are, the sins that we confessed at the beginning of this gathering. Like we get to actually say Jesus has a concern about those and his concern is to release us from our bondage to them. He wants to set us free. So Mark invites us to this Jesus. And by the way, if, uh, if you can't tell, this is a resurrection sermon. It's about the resurrection of Jesus. This is not a resuscitation sermon. And you say, well, what's a resuscitation sermon, Kyle? Well, that's a great question. I'm glad you've asked. A resuscitation is when you pass out, your heart stops, they bring you back. Are you dead if you need to be resuscitated? Question mark to all of you medical students uh, at DMU. But you come back and it's the same you. You're breathing again and there's been very little shift. Resurrection means that there has been a death decisively and now life has come forth. And um, I think the sobering thing about a uh, anti-Easter resurrection Sunday is that sometimes we don't want resurrection because it hurts, because resurrection requires a death for new life to come. So we don't, we don't really want for things to proceed in this way, do we? So we don't re want resurrection because it hurts, but we certainly do not want resuscitation because we don't want things to just carry on as they have for the past year, season, or decade. No, we actually want to step into new life, but the difficulty of stepping into the new is there's a relinquishing of the old, but the hope of resurrection reaches back in the name of Jesus to like pull us into it, into the new reality of life with Jesus. It's like this scene in the Chronicles of Narnia, a, a friend in my community group recently told this story and it's been just like sitting in my mind. There's this scene and a young boy who becomes a dragon is, is tired of being there. And Aslan, who is this image of Jesus throughout the Chronicles of Narnia, he, he invites this boy to relinquish the old. And so he tears it off and it doesn't quite hurt. And he tears off the skin, but then it's still there because he's inviting him to bathe and to be refreshed. And so then the moment comes where Aslan is to be the one. He is to be the one who sinks deeply and there's this moment where he, he puts his, his claws in and it's like it pierces his heart and he rips it off. And what's there is smooth, this boy, and he goes and he goes into the waters to be bathed and it hurts at first, it's uncomfortable, but then there's refreshment that comes. See, it hurts to die to the old, but the newness that comes is refreshment. Jesus is saying, meet me in the Galilee. Meet me in the refreshment. Meet me in the new life. This is the resurrection hope that's breaking into our present moment. See, resurrection means that there is a new way to be human. It is the way of Jesus, the way of self-giving love. Jesus of Nazarene, who was crucified, he is risen. He is risen indeed. Let us pray. Jesus, we say that we want to look up 
and see you work in power. We want to like anableppo your mighty works. We don't want to just look with human concerns at you, Jesus. We want to look at you and expect that you will meet us and you will call us wherever we are. And so I would just pray that, Jesus, your spirit would move in mighty power this day in our city, in this church family, that you would awaken us to the life that we have in your name and perhaps for the very first time to life in your name that you would give us the courage to partner with you to, to relinquish the old and to embrace the new. So come, Holy Spirit, we pray. Move in power. Help us to cling tightly to the hope of resurrection whose name is Jesus. Amen.